All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful DC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Kaiser Permanente is one of the largest nonprofit healthcare plans in the United States. At Afrotech 2019, then Kaiser Permanente Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Bernard Tyson, may he rest in peace, talked with Blavity CEO Morgan DeBarn about the healthcare Goliath's efforts in the social determinants of health and how technology can play a role in amplifying their impact. We are unique in that we're, we're, as I said, we're such a big mega health system. We take care of almost 13 million people, and we exist in communities in which 68 million people live. Mm. So we get a great view of the inequities uh, in this country. So you have one community where it has everything that one can imagine to thrive, right? So you have great uh, police service, mm -hmm. uh, grocery stores everywhere. Right. Um, you know, a gas station is truly a gas station. And you feel safe to walk in the evenings and at night and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You go to another neighborhood and you, you almost can't get the street lights changed. Right. And there's no grocery store and um, crime is high. Mm -hmm. And um, in a lot of cases, those communities did not have a voice at the table when money was being divided up governmentally to fund all these programs. Mm -hmm. So Kaiser Permanente um, is playing a, a heavy advocacy role to make sure that we build what we call healthy communities for all of our communities. 
because we know that healthcare can only do so much to help you with your health. Right. And so if you are living on um, fried chicken every day, yeah, Popeyes. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, Popeyes. Uh, <laughs> but in these communities, it's how do we, how do we um, really provide options mm -hmm. for people to make choices? That's right. And so that's really what Thrive Local is about, that we're working with our resources, community resources, and we're helping people to thrive. We just announced that we're going to do drones with UPS. Okay. Right? Tell us more. And somebody asked me, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're going to have the drones doing something. Right. It's <laughs> dropping off food. Yeah, but the whole point is, with all this technology, yeah. you can rethink how you want your business to work. Right. Right. And that's been the beauty of the technology now. It has allowed us to disrupt our organization. And that's what's happening in organizations. You basically, in the 19th and the 20th century, built organizations to conform and comply, right? And, and you know, part of the third industrial revolution was mass production. And we're now in the fourth industrial revolution, we now have the kind of technology where you can disaggregate everything. And, and so, you know, we used to have all of our patients coming in. Mm -hmm. Now, over 50% of our interactions with patients are on the iPhone and the iPads and technology. Uh, it's a whole different mindset that you can establish and operating procedures on the platform of technology. And so I would encourage people to keep innovating in this area. I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. Savitra Wilson is a serial entrepreneur and founder at Resilia, a New Orleans-based tech startup that helps nonprofit organizations increase capacity and enable enterprises that deploy billions of dollars to scale their impact. She was honored with the Nobel Prize for Public Service, the Jefferson Award, and was featured in the Senate report to the White House on volunteerism during the Obama administration. Just before we recorded this episode, she announced Resilia had just raised an $8 million Series A. There's undeniably a market need for good nonprofits doing great work. I asked Savitra about what she commonly sees hinders the realization of their full potential. So interestingly enough, um, probably around May 20th, there was a report released just talking about philanthropy um, and really talking about the disparity in philanthropy and where money goes and how that money uh, is just dispersed, right? Um, and so for certain nonprofits, we're talking about like nonprofits run by black and brown people, um, there's a disparity in like them being able to access resources to grow their nonprofit organizations. Um, and particularly as we are in the age, uh, even in the day where we're heavily focused on uh, equity and equality and um, how we can fix the things that have just historically been wrong um, related to ensuring that people of color, particularly black people, right? Because we're, we're not gonna like blanket all of us over people of color uh, any longer. 
Uh, and one of the things that the study was essentially saying, um, and this is by Eco Green and Brisbane, is that a lot of times nonprofit organizations, one, they don't have access to the Rolodex of organizations that can uh, give them the resources. Uh, once they get to the table, if they ever get to the table, um, then they don't have the right tools, resources, are able to essentially display the information the way funders want it, right? And so they're at a disadvantage that way. And what it takes to do that type of data, um, type of analytics to pull those type of reports takes a lot of time and money, which they don't have because they're on the ground working every day in and out of their nonprofit organizations. Um, and so when we think about how um, nonprofits are just like less resource. Like that's one of the biggest hindrances that's holding organizations back from growing. Um, and then also, how do you move beyond just being a nonprofit leader, but thinking of yourself as like a business leader, like you are, you, this organization is incorporated. Uh, you should be thinking about it like a business. You should operate like a business. Um, how do you move from just taking on funding? How do you begin to diversify into services? Um, and so these are definitely, I could go on and on, but I'll kind of wrap it up there. We could definitely continue to talk about what are like the blocks for nonprofit organizations. Yeah, I think about, um, I live in a place where we, in where at my city, we have more nonprofits per capita than anywhere else in the country, right? Which tells me we're stepping on all of our toes. Yes. Right? And um, do you think we consider collaboration at the level we should? Because um, I mean, you you get it. Ter territorial, the the pies aren't as big for you know people to be able to fund these efforts and et cetera. Like, how do you think? So we can't so we cannibalize each other. How do you mm -hmm. think about uh, when you see nonprofits who that just pop up because somebody's passionate about something? Um, how do you process that? Yes, um, even with inside of our software, we're always trying to benchmark for um, does this organization need to exist. Right. Um, and even as a consultant, like many moons ago, working with nonprofit organizations, um, people used to come to me like, oh, I want to start this organization. Um, first, I always ask, like, does this organization like this exist in your community yeah. already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah, but have you volunteered for them <laughs> yet? Have you spoke to the, the organizational leader yet? Have yeah. you spoke to the C? Have you had a conversation? Yeah. Uh, with them yet to understand like what are your challenges um and if i don't feel like you're effective in my community do you have the bandwidth um and you should because you're about to start a new nonprofit <laughs> to help them get to where they're trying to go without being the founder or ceo of it right um and so i'm a big believer of trying to bring um organizations together and even um have seen situations where large funders would look at organizations that they were funding and they're like, you, you were basically doing the same work. If you guys actually came together, mm -hmm. um, meaning like formed, right, um, together, we would give you more money and we think you'd be more effective. Um, but of course, what comes in, in the way with that, right? Yeah. So a little bit of like pride and ego, uh, who's gonna run the organization, what role do I you know, get? Um, are my issues gonna be um, heard? And so there are a lot of barriers to that. Um, but, you know, we know because we've been crunching numbers forever, um, not just in your community, but we've seen a 4X increase of nonprofit organizations over the past uh, 10 years, um, not only in the country, but across the world. And so we know there's a lot of reasons for this, um, not just like the 
do-gooders in our community that want to create nonprofit organizations, but there are a lot of, as we consider like legacy foundations being created. Um, and so with that, that there's more organizations being created, there's also more philanthropic dollars being deployed than we've ever seen before. And so that could also be a reason, right, that these organizations are forming to actually go after some of these new funds that are coming out, which is the case with COVID-19. Um, and is also the case now with saving black lives, right? That's right. So how, how do you inspire or help people who are passionate about a thing get the business side under them because i think about um too often when we think about impact and being passionate about a particular issue whether it be social justice whether it be COVID, the product or the offering may be lacking you know we we have so much heart but so little business sophistication in too many instances not every instance but in too many instances so talk uh, talk a little bit about what you with those folks who you ask you know, does this already exist in your community or have you volunteered there? How do you, you know, advise them to not only, you know, pump the brakes a little bit, but get that work done in the right way? Yeah, um, the same things that set back, hold back, keep down nonprofits are the same things that hold back, set back, keep down us from building businesses as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think that, uh, many many of those things, which I, I've obviously worked with a lot of big, small business owners to help them get their uh, business off the ground. I've worked with a lot of nonprofits to get them to get their organizations off the ground. And I tell you, there's so many parallels that run uh, between the two. Uh, but yeah, and it, it really is. It's so very similar. Um, and so for nonprofits, it's always about what are you going to focus on, right? So what can you get really good at where people are like, oh, we go to them for this. And I think that just our nature, we want to help everybody and be everything to everybody. And we can't be that way if we want to get things done. And if we want to grow our organizations, we have to figure out like, what is that thing that we really, we might care about a lot of things. We got to really hone in on that one thing that's going to allow us um, to be able to not only uh, gain the expertise right around, but to also gather support around so that that one thing people are like, oh, I got that person for you. Um, and even when we talk about resources, because generally speaking, when we look at funders, they are looking at, they're trying to put together pieces too, right? And so it's like, what piece are you solving for that's going to make this equation come together? Um, and you don't, and because you are strapped for resources, you probably don't want to go out there talking about you solve all these other things. Like, well, how? Because you only got a budget of $20,000 a year. So you, you can't be solving all these things. This don't add up. This math don't add up. Right, right. Um, and so really trying to get uh, organizations to like focus in and like zero in on like, what can you solve and be the best at, um, at doing? Um, and then how can you begin to look at uh, individuals that support that specific cause or, or create ambassadors um, and champions of that cause because it's attached to things that other people believe about. Um, and so there is so many parallels, man, to like just being like a founder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it, it is the same, right? Yeah. So if, if I can condense what you said into a nutshell, I'm going to ask you this is, is what you're saying um, that I should really just get really, really, really good at one thing or, or this narrow vertical. Yeah. And like then 
Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. Right. And Um, with that, does that cause me to have more success ultimately? Because that's, I think, what people don't see is they see, well, if I only do this one thing, then how am I going to get bigger? Yes. And the thing is, it's like, if once you do that thing very well, then you can branch out and do other things. Right. Um, And you're right about that. But I do, I mean, such a good example is like what's happening in Minneapolis right now, right? In Minnesota. Um, And in Minnesota, and just like framing it around um, the murder of George Floyd, um, people started giving to the Minnesota um, fund, right? And so everybody was giving to the Minnesota fund. And when you go to their website, I was kind of like, I gave them to them too. You know, I was like, oh, boom. Yeah. I, we got a place we go get to. That's yeah. what we go get to. Yeah. Then I, someone sent me a message. It was like, well, you need to give to the Black-led organization. I was like, dang, wait, let me go look at their website. And I looked, I was like, oh, no. Like, yeah. none of the people on the website was Black. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I'm giving money to these people to go help Black people, and they don't even have Black people in their organization. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, now I got to look for other organizations. But then I doubled back, and I realized that, okay, let me see what they're doing. So they were essentially... Um, targeting cash bail and bail bonds. So they were trying to eradicate that. Like that was their mission. So from jump, immediately I knew that the money that we were giving wasn't going to just go back to (laughs) the protesters, you know, who were out there, although some of it would, but they raised so much money that now they're going to essentially be able to eradicate um, cash bail in their, that's crazy to me, right? So they're going to be eradicated. However, they raised so much money that they said that start giving to these other organizations. This specific organization is looking to uh, defund the police. This specific organization is working on the ground specifically of helping with housing. This specific, you know, see, these are organizations where I'm like, okay, yes, we want to get protesters out of jail. Boom. We need to defund police. Boom. (laughs) You know, and so it just becomes very clear because of their mission. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. 
The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the One Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. So whose responsibility is it then? Because, you know, I think about when the social um, uprisings occur, you'll see this proliferation of messages on social media on who you should be giving to. Right. And so so to your point, like whose responsibility is it to make sure that that is clearly defined for the end user who just wants to give fifty dollars or one hundred dollars or a thousand dollars to an organization because can we expect the consumer or the, the donator or the, that benevolent person to go do all that research that's a vegetable do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that we do got to do a little bit better on ourselves, for sure. Um, and then also, I think that, you know, someone inside of the community, right? And so that that's how I found about all the other funds is because someone from that community said, oh, here are some other funds that are like black led. Um, I do think that there's opportunity to vet organizations and maybe that's somebody, you know, who's listening. They're like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually create a platform that does it. Um, and so that's why I was like, dang, I should have like did more. I should have went to the website. I should have looked at um, the people that I was associated with it. If you want to take it um, a little bit further, then you can go to like Candace's website and do a search of them. But the only problem when you start really doing that is that you begin to exclude black organizations who, again, going back to maybe they don't have the data points, maybe they don't have the information in, into these uh, platforms. It doesn't mean that they're not doing the work and they can't get the work done. And so you have to be like really careful and mindful of trying to like vet organizations as well. Um, but I do feel that you know, you go look in the community, you come to New Orleans and <laughs> we'll let you know who to give to or who, you know, who are really doing what they're supposed to do with the money. Yeah. So I, I think about, you know, you're solving um, a lot of issues for, I, I, I would, for in layman's terms, like a lot of back office issues for nonprofits. Is that an mm-hmm. adequate statement? Yeah. For nonprofits and for, as we consider our enterprise customers. So um, we work with Oxfam America, we work with United Way. And so we essentially are, we consider like the one app connector between the nonprofit or grantee, because it doesn't have to be a nonprofit. It can also be a vendor, which can be a for-profit um, 
to the grantor or that entity that's deploying capital. So if you're a city, a private foundation, a corporation, we work with them all. Um, and so we essentially manage that process of how they give money to organizations or vendors who essentially do the work, right? Because these foundations, they're not actually doing them really, you know, they're not on the ground doing the work, they're funding organizations and vendors to do the work. Um, and so our platform essentially is that connected tissue between both where not only we're monitoring the information that's coming in, the data around it, we're doing the reporting, the evaluations, and then we're also on the nonprofit side, providing them with capacity building tools and technical assistance so that they can be um, better stewards of not only their money, but also better stewards of how they run their organizations, um, as well as how they train their team members. We essentially have drastically reduced what we were doing as consultants and productized it, right? And so we took everything that we were doing as consultants uh, for these large grantors and these grantees and these nonprofits, and we began to productize it into a software and deliver it through a subscription-based platform. That's what we do. Yeah. So I'm super interested in your take on this then, because I think about um, the importance of wealth in our community. And the I find with my, you know, in, in context to you, my uneducated, right, um, perspective on this, like, is at some point we have to move past waiting for someone to write us a check for our good work mm -hmm. because they may feel like, oh, again, to your point, like, you know, I, who's doing good work? Let me give them some money. And right. you have the person who's trying to do the good work always with their hand out, always with their hat in their hand, like, you know, trying to raise money somewhere. And how can we think about other ways to support and put fuel in the tank for our good work or is it could be could it be value exchanged yes for sure i think that um there is value exchange for particularly like nonprofits. um most people think that most nonprofits, their money comes from like private foundations and corporations and um you know these other philanthropic resources but that's not the case the majority of most nonprofits, their money is coming from contracts um services or from individuals and so I think that that's like a myth buster, right? Because most people would think like philanthropy is controlling, which to, to a certain extent they are because they can also entirely fund a nonprofit, right? To do their work, to do the work that they want them to do. Uh, but most nonprofits uh, in the US at least actually don't sustain themselves off philanthropic dollars. Um, and so that's a very important to like note, but like one of the things even with our software, what we want to do is since we own both relationships, the grantor and the grantee, more organizations that come into our platform, we want to essentially begin recommending them to our the grantors because we know their giving history. We know the type of organizations they like to give to, the causes, et cetera. And we could essentially take organizations that would never get opportunity to get in front of them and essentially scout on their behalf, right? Um, by just knowing their data. And so by doing that, we're able to remove the biases that have prevented these organizations from getting in front of these other dollars for a very long time. And that's not just philanthropy, but that's government, right? Because we, um, our customers are also government, um, corporations, uh, and so on. And so when we think about that, um, it's about like diversifying. Um, and so like one of my um, customers, like Metromorphosis, when we first came in contact with them, they were doing maybe like $250,000 a year in annual, in annual budget. They had like one full-time person, a contracted person. Um, and today they have like a full suite of uh, team, fast forward, they're doing a budget about 1.8 million. 
um, and what allowed them to get there is that they started going after city contracts, right? And so they went after the um, DBE, which is essentially um, a set aside that says like 30% of this opportunity of this large billion dollar project has to go to minority businesses. And they went after that contract. And so they essentially are overseeing that deployment and where that money goes. And so now they're like, okay, now they're going after more government contracts and they're a nonprofit and they're going after government contracts in the same way a business would be going after those contracts. And they got more power because they got the community. And so somebody like, oh, who do we pick? We're going to pick the person with all the resources. And so nonprofits can win like that when they start thinking like that. uprisings regarding racial injustice prompted several major corporations to step up to the plate with bags of money to fight racism, open up doors of opportunity, and reinforce their pipelines with diverse talent. Some of this we've seen before. Skeptics would say it's not enough and to look at their corporate history, look at their board of directors, look at their vendor diversity. So, were previous efforts insincere, or did they simply not know what to do to solve these problems? Savitra speaks on it. Yes. So I do think that we are coming into a different age of corporate giving um, where people are beginning to hire people that are a little bit more in tune, right, Uh, to trying to make an impact. Um, In addition to that, I do feel that... um, we know, we know when people be insincere, you just not sincere about stuff. We were like, all right, here they go. You know, you know I, I've been very critical of like Gucci, right? Gucci, they been oh, black people and then they was like, boom, so $10 million. Like the, the owners of Gucci, like they behind, they blow $10 million in the summer. And it's just like, that's an insult to my intelligence. You know, like that's just an insult to my intelligence right there. But yeah. You know, there are other institutions like you will say like a J.P. Morgan Chase, right, where they have essentially deployed billions at this point. Um, and people will say J.P. Morgan Chase, like, oh, we don't like this type of corporate philanthropy because they're essentially disrupting what some people would say. Um, and they're rebuilding and redesigning say, black cities like Detroit. And so. What do we feel about that, right? Are we paying attention? Like, are we really paying attention to what's going on and who's involved? Now, I will say um, on JP Morgan um, for if you look at their team in Detroit, very like it's a lot of Black people there, but also holding Black people accountable for doing things for Black people, right? And um, being sincere about that is important. Um, but you do see corporations now who are really putting a huge stake into not just like, oh, we're gonna give here, we're gonna give these organizations, but they're trying to actually transform um, entire, um, we consider like sectors, um, communities, cities. And so we also have to be very mindful of what that means. And so not just for nonprofits, but you have a proficiency in helping people figure out how to charge for their stuff, their value, right? And so, I would imagine that most entrepreneurs will look at the landscape of the market and say, okay, what is the closest person to what I'm doing charging? And let me base my price upon that. 
Like, is that in your mind the best way to go about this? So I think that that is like the easiest way to go about it. Um, but it might not be what's best for your work, right? Um, and so I do think that we have a problem with like pricing in general um, in a way that it actually takes us under, right? And so I think that when we think about um, pricing, it's from an uh, organizational standpoint, it's like, can you also, you know, make a living? Can you uh, get the work done? Can you hire people um, effectively? Uh, when you scope out your entire um, budget, you know, is it actually related to um, your demographics, who you're serving, um, the, the additional need that may exist around them, right? Uh, and so I think you have to take into consideration all the complexities that may impact your price that may not impact the person across from you's price. So when, when you say, I'm going to charge X and it's probably more money than a lot of people may be comfortable charging for something, how do, how do you get over the, the internal like, oh, how do I put this number in front of folks? Well, me today or me two years ago? <laughs> Today, you probably like, look, this is the number, fam. This is the number. Yeah, because, you know, your numbers change with experience, too, right? Um, and so seven that's something to think about. Like, your numbers change with your experience. And 10 years ago, my experience was a lot different than it is now. And what I have to bring to the table, uh, but the resources that I bring, the partners that I bring, um, the network that I bring. And so you're bringing to the table more than just what you can do uh, pen to paper, right? Uh, and so you take into account all of those things when you're setting your price. And I know I do at least. Uh, so I think that those are things that people have to consider. Do you, to that point, is it is it that people are just paying for the service that you're offering or they're paying for the value of being able to work with you so and the for service? Resilia, yeah, for the Resilia, they're paying for the service, right? So because we're a SaaS business model, um, what you pay and what the next person pay is not going to change, right? So we have like set numbers. We, if you're on the enterprise platform, you're paying per seat. Um, if you are a nonprofit organization, you're paying specifically for your subscription. So those numbers are unchanged. Um, now in solid ground, so my other business, that is based on, you know, what I'm setting my fees and um, anything related to my expenses for. Um, and I'll tell you, like, now, when I'm asked to be a part of projects, it's kind of, if when you start planting seeds, those seeds are going to start to grow. Um, and it may not come to fruition immediately, but over time it will. And so today, I literally get asked to be a part of um, projects and on, like, pulled into, like, RFPs, responses for work that I never even have to touch. They just need to use my name and my resume and my background. And they they just want me on the team. Yeah. And literally I do some, some consulting and I get a check. Like I don't have to do anything. <laughs> I just, and so, but that's what 10 plus years of work now affords me to be a part of teams who are going after multi-million dollar contracts. And they're like, we need to be sure on our team. And so, uh, how much you gonna charge us to be on our, you know, well, boom, that's what I'm gonna charge. And when y'all, when y'all start doing the work, they call me like, all right, 
what do you think about this and this? Because then, you know, I have to actually do some work as a part of the contract. Um, but for the most part, I don't have to chase business on my solid ground with my consulting company. Uh, the business comes to me back now. Like it comes to me now. Uh, and so like, that's where, that's like, we think about like building stuff for ourselves, as you mentioned earlier. So we don't have to go ask these people for money. Um, then we become the philanthropist, right? And so then we can direct money to organizations that look like us and they don't have to go chase money from these organizations that don't look like them. And so like, we're talking about like the ultimate goals, like that's what we're building for. Oh, yeah. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Walbroke, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. We're going to come back. We're, we're going to come back to that. Matter of fact, we might close on that topic. But I want to, there's a couple of things I want to, I want to make sure I pull out of here. And it's, you know, you talked uh-huh. about, you know, over 10 years, you've built up a reputation and a name and integrity and all these things that say, you know, look, if we're trying to do X, Y, and Z, we need Savitri on the team. Right. And so you've got so many people um, in our audience who are, you know, building, um, you know, for lack of a better phrase, uh, you know, boutique services, consulting services, you know, personal services and et cetera. And how do, how is it that you saw the long game in that? Because I, w- I would imagine that you knew one day it would pay off, but you might. And I, I don't know, but you perhaps didn't know that, you know, one day it will be people just call me and I'll set my price. And 
like I, I said before, a meeting in a bounds. You may have known. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. I'm yeah, making assumptions, which I, I shouldn't I, do. I don't, know I, I don't know if I knew that. I think that when it started to happen to me, I think that it became very obvious why, right? And so when I think about, and then, you know, I have like mentors, et cetera. You know, my mentors got contracts with Chevron and this person, this person, and they get $25,000 monthly retainers and they, people might call them for an hour a month. Yeah. Like there's levels to this, right? <laughs> there's levels. <laughs> there's levels. I ain't, I ain't at that level yet. All right. But there are levels to this. And so when you hear stuff like that and, you know, people are kind of like trying to show you like how this works, right? And how... Um, your ability, people think that social media influencing is something. No, no. Being able for public affairs from a gas an oil company to call you once a month and you get $25,000 for an hour, that's influence. Like, people don't understand. Like, it's levels, man. It's levels. Um, and so when I think about like, influence, that's like the sphere of influence. I think about like things that can like drive elections, people that can drive people to the polls, people that can um, help influence someone getting uh, into a position. Um, like those are type of influences that I think about. And when you begin to have those type of influences in your community um, and in your sphere or your business circles, people begin to reach out to you um, because that makes you, you make them more competitive, right? And so for me, starting out, I was just, you know, coming, I was so young when I started my first business, but I was just like so green. So at 22, I was just out here first, very small contracts, um, doing consulting, like marketing, public relations, um, digital advertising, stuff like that. Um, from there, we started getting contracts, starting off with like uh, nonprofit organizations, doing work for them, then law firms, you know, building their websites, stuff like that. Um, and then those contracts started to like increase. Then I went to um, a conference and at that uh, entrepreneurs conference, they basically were talking about government contracting. And then I was like, government contract, this is interesting. And then this woman, um, Nicole, she was talking about how she was living in her mother's basement. She was a single mother um, and she got into government contracting and she was going as a junior partner. So she was basically subcontracting, right? And so that's another hack for any entrepreneurs out there who are trying to get started. Sometimes our eyes be on the big prize. We'd be like, oh, we're about to go after this large contract. What you really need to be going after is this, this the company that's going to get the contract. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. get work. The prime. Yeah, the prime <laughs> so, contract. So, yeah. Yes. Because that's, that's just the things that we just don't know yet, that's right? right? And that's so right. we'll be going after a large contract with no capabilities, not enough proof, like none of this. Yeah. And it's just because we're just not, we're not there yet. Um, as we know somebody that's going to, Write, write us a check, uh, which is very seldom. Um, and so going and subcontracting and learning the game from these larger companies is something that I got hip to um, pretty earlier. And same thing with Nicole and government contracting. Um, once she got hip to that, then allow her to like go after these larger contracts as the prime and then subcontract other consultants and agencies underneath. Uh, and so that's essentially how I started like, building um, my company. Um, as a whole, but then when I started Resilia, I had to like pull back from SGI and I was like, okay, we're gonna like maintain these contracts over here. But from that, just sitting a little bit, you know, letting marinate, other stuff started happening. Then people started just coming to me, 
Um, and so I think that that's something that, you know, just, just stay out here and start working. Like get out here and work y'all and like just make it happen because at the end of the day, the doors gonna start to open. Um, you just have to understand how, what's the code, right? You have to figure out the code. Um, and once you figure out the code, it's gonna unlock the door. Then you gotta unlock another door. Then you unlock another door. Yeah, um, yeah that's just like kind of the process. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, like you're building in a community that is not historically known for technology, right? You're not, you're not in the biggest ecosystem in the world. And you no. just raised, um, you announced $8 million on uh, a Series A, mm -hmm. Series A yeah. recently. And talk to me a little bit about, because I, I think sometimes we take for granted that the large part, the large portions of people trying to build tech companies are not in Silicon Valley, right? And, but they're in Oklahoma and they're in New Orleans and they're in Ohio and they're in, you know, these other communities. And you've got people with different lifestyles trying to do this thing. And we don't always speak to them, but we speak the language of a Silicon Valley. And so talk to me about um, the challenges you've had to overcome with building in a community that is not a traditional tech hub. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so building in the industry, right? I, it's interesting because when I first started um, building the company, um, Resilia, nobody, nobody believed me. Nobody believed that we could build a company in this space. And it, it honestly hasn't been, you have like the black bots out there. Um, you have like these grant management systems, which we're um, quite a bit different than grant management systems um, who have been dominating the space for like 20 plus years. So these old school technology they're using. Um, and so when we started coming into the space, people were like, oh, well, this is how big is this space? You know, is it really, is it too niche, et cetera. So the same thing they were telling the companies like Carta and everybody else who now work billions of dollars. Um, and it, to me, it was actually Salesforce that began, in my opinion, to open up like just the VC world around like selling to philanthropy because they began to uh, aggressively start acquiring companies in our space. Um, and like over the past year and a half, they probably acquired almost like a billion and a half companies in our space um, to build out a suite of products for nonprofit organizations. And so if you follow Salesforce, they had like the 1% pledge and all these other things going on um, that they kind of pushed in Silicon Valley. And so when we came into the space uh, earlier than that, before that started happening, no one really felt it. But now we get so much outreach from investors like, oh, yes, we've been following the nonprofit uh, world technology and we feel like there's so much room for uh, improvement um, and technology advancements in this space. But that wasn't the case a couple of years ago. Uh, and so now we don't really have to prove that part of it anymore. Uh, but had I not had the opportunity to keep going, we probably wouldn't exist anymore, right? Um, and for us, we began to really evaluate how we can expand, right? How can we expand beyond nonprofits? And that gave birth to like our enterprise uh, platform, which targets um, obviously uh, three core verticals. Um, but it was definitely like really challenging. And then in New Orleans, the tech space is definitely, we've had like a few um, success stories here and there, but generally ain't nobody coming scouting in New Orleans, you know, like that's just what it is. And for me, at one point I was like, oh man, do I have to move to San Francisco? Do I have to move to Silicon Valley? And was actually legitimately like thinking about it. And I just realized how much that would have like completely drastically changed my entire journey. Like my whole journey would look different had I done that. 
And so I am happy that I stayed in the South and began to like find people who were investing in founders outside of Silicon Valley, which now I believe like, particularly for like SaaS companies, um, people are doing like more of that than they were several years ago. So one of the things that, um, you know, these uprisings, these social uh, justice uprisings and the not only the George Floyds, but the Amy Coopers and the Ahmaud Arbery's or Amy Coopers, who was on the other side of this uh, conversation. Yeah, but, <laughs> but you, yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so these situations brought me to is, you know, when I think about being a founder and being in the technology industry and trying to generate wealth, right? We're Obviously, we're not just doing this to do stuff, but we're trying to build wealth, wealth for um, our communities and for our families. And it, it started to make me think more about what is like, okay, we want to build wealth, take care of our people, but like, what is, how are we activating that? So, and what I mean by that is we can't just be silent anymore, in my opinion. I believe, and I'm wondering your take on this, is because we see so many people who will be in it for the bag, but won't speak up, or maybe they're afraid to speak or don't know how to speak up. Um, and maybe, maybe in un, I don't want to be unfair because not everybody's public about how they do things and how they move. But I do feel like there's a there is a new day upon us where we have to be vocal about these issues. And I'm wondering how you think about things. Has your feelings changed about how we behave as black entrepreneurs who are building wealth and who are impacting our communities in a certain way? Because I've really been thinking about that and how. Like, what is the purpose of wealth? Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? So, I mean, let's like unpack that a little bit, right? And so when we think about, I think about, first of all, this is a conversation I was having recently um, about some of the issues that I had with like black investors, right? Um, when I was first going out to raise money, how difficult it was to raise money from black investors, like um, kind of coming up. And what I began to realize is that because we are so new to wealth, we're so new to money that we're so risk averse. Mm. Um, and so I started thinking about that, right? As far as like investors where they put their money, you know, black investors, they like real estate and you know, things yeah. that they have historically taught yeah. to like. And so a lot of them are new to technology and invest in technology and idea that, oh man, like I could lose my money, like done. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you know, like a lot of them have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. Um, and just now kind of being pulled into it, whether they're in like private equity space. Um, and so when we think about like how we challenge um, from that perspective, to helping our businesses, our businesses around us to get the resources they need internally so that they can build their companies. I think like that's one challenge. Um, but as we create more millionaires, and I think generally like our generation, as we accumulate more, um, we'll do more by way of the generation that we were born in and how we kind of came through society. Um, and so I think that that's something to think about like generationally, what does wealth look like? Um, how it's passed down, how it's held onto, and then what is the thought process around that? Is it something that, oh, I'm holding wealth to pass it down to my kids uh, yeah. versus, oh, I have wealth, so now I can ensure I made this wealth via my company and I want to ensure that um, 10 other individuals 
become millionaires through ensuring their companies are successful, right? And so it also becomes like, what becomes our legacy that we internally hold around wealth in our communities? And then how do we begin to build upon that legacy? Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be by me exchanging money. It can be by another form. If you're, if you, one thing I say about cities, right? Black people have opportunity in contracting inside of cities because a lot of times, particularly in these large urban cities, black people have the power of the pen. Black people are mayors in cities and we have to hold them accountable to ensuring that black businesses get these contracts because that creates wealth as well. And so there's so many ways we can build wealth in our communities by holding each other accountable and creating a playbook. And if these people don't care, you know, they don't want us to do that. You you didn't vote me in here, to be honest. And so I'm like, why are you nervous? That person didn't vote you in. Yeah. <laughs> and so I feel like there's so many ways we come at wealth that we just have to create this collective um just like plan to do it. And we gotta put the right people in the right positions to make it happen. Um, and we can no longer, as you say, stay quiet, and we can no longer take positions in which we are just a diversity face for mm. company. Mm. And so these are ways that we can incrementally help each other feel well and begin to make um, a pathway to financial freedom because financial freedom unlocks so many doors for us in our community. Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech. It's produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas. With additional production support by Love Beach, Stephanie Ogbogu, and Raven Earboard. Special thank you to Micah Davis, Sankara Savanyan, you know, like the wine, and yes, that's his real name, and Karika Green. Learn more about Savitra Wilson and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. Go get your money. Peace and love. AT&T Connects and Ode to Podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. 
Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine.